Good morning. Our reading today is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. That can be found in page, on page 1174 of our blue Bibles. Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me, uh, to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in the generation as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the work of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the, gent to the Gentiles the, riches, the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, of this mystery, which for ages was kept, was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the, realm, in the heavenly realms, according to, according to his eternal purpose that, uh, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. Good morning. Let's uh, pray together as we start. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to look at your words to us now, Please do help us to be encouraged as we see how amazing you are. Amen. Well, how do you react when you get some amazingly good news? News that sounds a bit too good to be true. I'm not talking about an email from a long-lost uncle who, as luck would have it, you can help out by sending £1,000 to a bank in a country you've never heard of. I'm not talking about that because you know that isn't true. I'm talking about an email from the premium bonds people saying you've won big. Amazingly good news, but you know the odds are probably 24 million to one. Or the letter from the school or college offering you a place when you thought you had virtually no chance of getting in. How do you react when you get that kind of news? Alternatively, how do you react when you get some harder news? news you find tougher to hear. So the letter from the doctor with the diagnosis you wished 
would never come, the email letting you know you didn't get the promotion you were looking for. Well, I don't know how you react, but I think generally in situations like this, what we probably do is check the message to remind ourselves why we should trust it. And we probably also check the messenger to remind ourselves why we should trust them. It's not to say we don't trust the email from the premium bonds people or the school uh, or the note from the doctor. You know, we know the message is probably true and we know the messenger is probably legit. But we want to confirm it, whether it's good news or news that we find a bit harder to hear, we need confirmation. So we call the premium bonds people to verify the email and validate the prize. We call the school to make sure the letter is from the head and they haven't sent us the wrong one. We Google the doctor to make sure they're properly qualified and haven't mistaken us for somebody with the same name. We double check with the boss to make sure their email account hasn't been hacked and they haven't made a mistake. Well, I think that's what's going on in Ephesians chapter 3. Because on the surface, you could cross out the verses we just had read to us. You could restart at verse 14. And you might not notice that these verses are missing. It's like they're a bit of a tangent. But I think what Paul has realized is that with some amazingly good news preached to us in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, and some harder instruction to come in chapters 4 to 6, that he would be wise to answer the question that might be moving towards the front of our minds, which is, are you sure? Paul, are you sure you've got the message right? Are you sure you're qualified to preach it? And so what Paul does is set out to confirm it. So he tells us three things. Firstly, he received a unique revelation from God about the church. Secondly, he received a unique commission from God for the world. And thirdly, these things happened so that God's wisdom might be revealed throughout the heavens by the church. And we need to believe those three things so that we'll firmly believe the amazingly good news in chapters 1 and 2, and so that we'll be committed to willingly and joyfully submitting to some of the instructions coming up in chapters 4 to 6. And that's true whether you're a Christian here this morning or whether you're just here looking into the Christian faith. So rather than these verses being verses we could cross out and not notice, it turns out they're actually the glue for the whole letter. So let's take a look and see what they say. Firstly, Paul received a unique revelation from God about the church. Paul received a unique revelation from God about the church. Take a look down with me at verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, 
and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So what God revealed to me is a bit of a game changer, Paul says. It was something that God knew that he hadn't fully revealed to those in generations past, and God did the big reveal by his spirit to Paul. How do we know that Paul had a revelation from God, that he didn't just dream up the contents of this letter in the bath? Well, because the other apostles received it too, he says in verse 5. So it's not just one man saying, I've got the secret. The key witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus received this spirit-given insight too. So this revelation didn't just occur to Paul in a cave, and we're supposed to believe it. It is much vetted by the other church leaders and by the church itself, not least because it was so revolutionary at the time, it had to be. So what was the mystery revealed by God to Paul? Well, the mystery was that Jews and Gentiles are equally part of God's church and equal heirs to the blessings that come from God through that, both in this life and the life to come. Now, you might be wondering, why on earth is that a mystery? Well, in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul says that God's big plan for the universe is to unite all things under his Son, Jesus Christ. But what wasn't clear up until this point was how on earth he was going to do it. So I think the assumption throughout the Old Testament part of the Bible was God makes a promise to a guy called Abraham that all peoples on earth would be blessed through him. Abraham's family grows into the nation of Israel, who should have been a light to the other nations, displaying the glory and goodness of God. The other nations go, wow, I want some of that. And so they come and join Israel to share in that same God, be blessed by that same God, so that God's promises to Abraham come true. In other words, the other nations would become part of the nation of Israel. They'd start to obey Israel's laws and follow Israel's customs. You want a relationship with God? Well, you become an Israelite. What certainly wasn't clear in the Old Testament was that the Jewish nation under God's rule would be replaced by the global church under God's rule. It certainly wasn't clear that in this new body of believers, Jew and Gentile would be viewed on truly equal terms. So what God revealed to Paul was a bit of a game changer. And so Paul needs to make clear that this revelation really was from God. He's not talking about God's revelation to him because he fancies, you know, bigging himself up or some kind of humble brag. He's talking about it because his message is revolutionary. It was going to get a lot of questions. So he needs to make clear that he didn't make it up. Far from it, he says, this revelation was directly from God himself. Now, just to be clear, Paul isn't saying that if you were born an Old Testament Israelite, you didn't have some advantages. He's very clear throughout his other teaching that as an Old Testament Israelite, you had plenty of advantages. You'd been taught the promises of God from when you were in nappies. You heard the stories of uh, God's rescue from Egypt, told over family meals by Uncle So-and-So from as early as you can remember. You'd fired pebbles at the neighbor's cat, pretending to be David with the cat being Goliath. You'd reenacted God's rescue of Daniel from the lion's den. 
You'd played first to 100 impossible things that God made possible with your siblings on the long car journey up to Jerusalem to the Passover every year. What an advantage all of that would have been. And I guess it's similar to growing up in a home today with Christian influence in it. It is a big advantage, isn't it? You know, growing up in a family where the gospel is at the heart of life. Growing up where parents or grandparents read the Bible to you or with you. If you're growing up in a home like that, don't take that for granted. That's an absolute privilege. Growing up as an Israelite when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, or growing up today in a home with Christian influence in it, that is definitely an information advantage. But it's not a ranking advantage. And what I mean by that is that Jews who put their trust in Jesus are not Premier League Christians with Gentiles joining in the second division. Gentiles who put their trust in Jesus, they're not like when two companies merge and you get that fluffy press release about how it's truly a partnership and a merger of equals, but where it's absolutely clear that some people are more equal than others. No, this is truly a merger of equals. Israelites who put their trust in Jesus and Gentiles who put their trust in Jesus are all equally part of God's church. Just like people who grow up in a Christian or an atheist or a Muslim or any other kind of household and who put their trust in Jesus are equally part of God's church. When you become a Christian, you become part of the same family, heirs to the same promises, an integral part of the body of Christ, no difference at all. Now that revelation was a bit of a game changer 2,000 years ago when Paul first preached it. And actually, it's still a bit of a game changer today. Not so much the equality of status between Jew and Gentile, because for most of us, that might feel more like a first century issue than a 21st century issue. But how about this? The fact that today, this morning, anyone, regardless of background, family history, country of birth, color of skin, male or female, rich or, uh, rich or young, uh, rich or uh, uh, poor, even, gosh, uh, young or old, can be welcomed as equal citizens in God's kingdom, sharing in the same promises and blessings of God in this life and the life to come, in equal terms, not by working hard or turning over a new leaf or giving money away or something like that. None of those things get us into God's kingdom. The only thing we have to do is trust in what Jesus has already done, dying on the cross to deal with our sins, rising again as king of his kingdom. That is still pretty revolutionary teaching. So revolutionary, in fact, that lots of people just cannot believe it. I'm not good enough. I've got too much stuff in my past. You should see my family. I don't feel like I fit in. How can God, who knows all of that, Welcome me into his kingdom on equal terms with people who look the part. Well, he can. And he will. And if that's you this morning, please don't let Paul's revolutionary teaching make you think that's impossible. Jesus' actions in the past make the impossible possible today. So come and join the family. What's stopping you? And if we're already Christians here this morning, let's be thankful that we live on this side of Paul. 
this side of God's revelation to him. Because we have the 4K Ultra HD understanding of God's eternal plan, whereas those who came before us didn't. Abraham didn't, nor did Isaac or Jacob or Moses or King David or King Solomon or Daniel or any of the other Old Testament prophets. We have a greater revelation of God's plan for the world than they did because God revealed it to Paul who revealed it to us. Aren't you grateful to live on this side of salvation history? Paul received a unique revelation from God about the church. Secondly, Paul received a unique commission from God for the world. Paul received a unique commission from God for the world. Take a look down at verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So God gave Paul a simple but unique job. Take the revelation I've given you and share it. Make plain to the Gentile world the truth that they are invited to become part of God's eternal church. Paul, your job is to switch the light on for them. I think switching the light on is normally a good thing, as long as what the light shows is what you want to see. So the bedroom light switched on first thing in the morning, bad. Sunset showing you a thousand colours in the sky, good. And that's what this is. And you might think that would call, cause uh, Paul to puff his chest out, uh, to think of himself as the big I am. I am the least of all the Lord's people, he says. And while you might disagree that Paul is the least of the Lord's people, given that he wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, started plenty of churches, and died for refusing to give up on Jesus, you might be able to understand what he meant. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, you know that the longer that you have the surgical light of the Bible staring at your mind and heart, the more you realize that God is very, very good and we are very, very not in other words, the longer that you're a Christian, the more you can echo Paul's words that we are the least of the Lord's people. God gave Paul a simple but unique job to preach the good news of Jesus as revealed to him simply and clearly to those who'd never heard it before. And because of that clear commission from God, Paul decided to tell it like it really is. One of my favorite TV shows is I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. It's quite terrible, obviously, but compelling viewing nonetheless. And if you don't know how the show works, the ITV producers get a bunch of people they generously call celebrities. They put them in the Australian jungle for two weeks, and they broadcast their every move so that the viewing public can decide each night who to vote to stay in and who to vote to leave the jungle. And for me, the best moment in that last series was when Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, was explaining how to avoid telling people how it really is. Now, he called it the pivot and claimed it was a well-known technique amongst politicians 
to turn a question you don't want to answer into one that you do. It was great TV because it instantly confirmed what you already knew to be true, that quite often those in the know will do anything they can not to tell you how it really is. Now that is not the Apostle Paul. Paul tells it to the world like it really is. He's not worried about the polls in four years' time. He's already received all the grace that's God's undeserved kindness to him that he could possibly hope for. So he tells it like it really is. Whether it's the brilliant news we've heard so far in chapters one and two of this letter, whether it's some of the harder to accept teaching that we'll receive in the coming weeks in chapters four to six, he will tell it like it really is. And so because he's willing to tell us the truth, we should listen very carefully to every word he's got to say, which is a lot harder than it sounds. It's easy to look around and see people completely ignoring what Paul has to say. Politicians asking for legislation to push the Church of England into accepting same-sex marriages because they think they know better than the Apostle Paul. And by extension, they know better than Jesus, who gave Paul his unique revelation and commission to preach the gospel. Bishops in the Church of England tying themselves in knots on the same issue knowing what Paul clearly says in the Bible, but are willing to compromise on that, thinking they are more enlightened than him, and by extension, more enlightened than Jesus. Ignoring the Apostle Paul's teaching is a very popular pastime. It's not just out there, though. It can be closer to home, too. You know, as we work through chapters four to six of this letter over the coming weeks, it would be amazing if there aren't things in there that Paul tells us to do that we do not want to do. Things that he tells us not to do, that we're very keen to do. How are we going to deal with that? If we're going to respond rightly, we're going to need to remember that Jesus graciously empowered and commissioned Paul to preach the boundless riches of his gospel. Jesus did not make a mistake. Paul did not go rogue. So we've got to listen to what he's got to say and encourage our brothers and sisters to do the same. Paul received a unique revelation from God about the church. Paul received a unique commission from God for the world. And finally, those two things happened so that God's wisdom might be revealed throughout the heavens by the church. God's wisdom might be revealed throughout the heavens by the church. Take a look down at verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what's the outcome of, Paul, of God's revelation to Paul and commission of Paul? It's the church. So as Paul's message to the world about God flinging open the doors to his family home, offering kingdom citizenship, full equality across people of all backgrounds, ages, races, and so on. As that message is shared across the world, God's Spirit takes it and uses it to draw people to himself to build his church. So look around you. This is the result, replicated in towns and cities across the globe. So what's the church for? 
or we might say evangelism, to tell the world the good news that Jesus loves them and wants them to be part of his family. We might say encouragement, to help each other live the Christian life day by day. Both are true and both are brilliant. What we probably wouldn't say is that the church's aim is to make God's wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. But that's what Paul says. Now, by rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, I take that to mean those spiritual forces on God's side, but also those who are opposed to God. That's what the end of chapter 6 would imply. And so I think Paul is saying that the church is like that big sign in Times Square But instead of advertising deodorant or something like that, it's advertising the wisdom of God to the spiritual forces throughout the cosmos. And I think we have to admit that sounds like a very strange plan. God's saying, I know how I'll display my wisdom. I will shine the spotlight on my church. But it does make sense when you think about it. Because the church is the jewel in the crown. Think about chapter 1, where we saw God's eternal plan in his infinite wisdom was to build a kingdom of people for his son, for his glory, and for their good. The kingdom of people is his church. The church is actually described as the body of Christ. And so as God shines a light on his church, he is spotlighting both his plan and his son at the same time. But with the church in the spotlight, how does it display the manifold wisdom of God? And you might think Paul would say things like, as we serve Jesus well in this life, as we share the gospel with those around us, as we make wise decisions, as we suffer in some way and remain faithful, as we sacrifice short-term comfort now for eternal comfort later. And he could have said all of those things because they're all true. But he doesn't. Instead, he says, verse 12. Have a quick look at verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I think what he's saying is that we display the manifold wisdom of God to the heavenly rulers and authorities as we engage with the God of the universe without fear and in full assurance that he thinks of us as family. So as we go about day-to-day life on this earth, doing all the stuff we need to do, in all the relationships we find ourselves in, but as we do it in communion with the God of the universe, as we talk to him about life, as we ask for help, as we thank him for his mercy, as we ask him for forgiveness again, As we bring our troubles before him and say, you know best, please help me, please do what I can't. And given this letter is so focused on the church, it's not just as we do these things by ourselves, it's as we do these things together, whether it's on a Sunday or in small groups or in our prayer meetings and so on. The heavenly rulers and authorities, whether they're on God's side or in complete opposition to him, they can't fail to notice sinful humanity like you and me talking to the pure and holy God of the universe as father, as family. That proves that God's plan is working. Look at X, Y, and Z, they might say, as you're walking to work or to school tomorrow morning. 
he or she has made more mistakes than we can count. But yet, they still talk to God as father and as family, freely, with confidence, knowing that in Jesus they've been forgiven all their sin, knowing that whatever happens in this life, an eternity in glory beckons. Wow, they might say. That plan of God's to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus, it's actually working. That plan to bring people of all backgrounds into a single global church is working. God's wisdom really is something else, isn't it? They might say. So don't be discouraged, Paul says in verse 13. Don't look at Paul in jail, which is where he wrote this letter from, knowing he was there at least in part, because he wouldn't stop telling people like you and me that we are just as welcome in God's family as anybody else. Instead, Paul says, remember, I received a unique revelation from God about the church. Remember the unique commission he received from God for the world. And finally, remember that as you go about daily life, putting God bang in the middle of it, you declare his multicolored wisdom to the rulers and authorities throughout the heavenly realms. Be discouraged. No chance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we live this side of your revelation to Paul about your gloriously inclusive church. Thank you that he was bold enough to proclaim it so that we might hear it and have the opportunity to join your church. And thank you that as we go about day-to-day -day life as your people, we can be, bring glory to you just by engaging with you as father and as family. Please let that be a huge encouragement to us as we walk into this week. Amen.